0: This is episode 135 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and today's guests. Well, we have a bunch of them today. <laughs> we have Dr. Kate Krivel. She's an associate professor at Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania, where she teaches courses in medical speech pathology and serves as the graduate program director. We are also joined by her colleague, Cynthia Reyes Pavon. She serves as the clinic director and internship coordinator at Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania. She's been teaching students in both clinical and classroom settings for over 15 years and has taught for Clarion University of Pennsylvania as well. Cindy has over 20 years of clinical experience with a wide variety of patient populations in multiple settings, including schools, outpatient clinics, inpatient hospitals, rehab centers, and skilled nursing facilities. In her role as clinic director at Edinburgh University, Ms. Reyes-Pabon oversees operations for the Governor George Leader Speech and Hearing Center, an outpatient clinic that serves as a training facility for the graduate students in the master's of Arts, Master of Arts in Speech Language Pathology program. She trains students, staff, and clinical educators on a regular basis to ensure quality services for clients and a superior clinic education for graduate students in the program. And both Cindy and Kate have invited four of their graduate students on this episode today, so you will hear their bios during the episode. And I hope you enjoy it. This was such a, I want to say, joyful (laughs) episode to do but it's not joyful I hate that these grad students are going through it but I really loved what they had to say and they just have such a positive attitude about what's going on so hopefully if you're a grad student or if you're an educator or clinical instructor going through this time hopefully you'll get some little nuggets of information from them and I'm so grateful that they came on to share their story with us. Just a quick disclaimer that
1: all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Do you feel unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP and perhaps a bit confused on how to even move forward? Do you feel completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, yet completely misunderstood and underappreciated in your facility? Do you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good therapy for your patients? When you started practicing medical speech pathology after grad school, did you get overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education? If you've been working in the field for a while, do you feel frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year? Are you even sure you're providing the right and best, most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients? Are you sick of paying up to $500 for courses that teach you about just one of the many, many conditions you need to stay up to date on? Imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized response to your clinical cases. Imagine if you felt you had the detailed, personalized support you needed to succeed in your practice and your career from a wide range of experts and fellow clinicians who care deeply about your career development. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and actually make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients and in your facilities? What if I told you I've created this exact solution? It's called the Medical SLP Collective. It's a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers.
2: My name is Kristen West. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist that specializes in children with medically complex histories, and I've worked with them in a variety of settings. What I love most about the Med SLP Collective is that it is such a passionate group of speech-language pathologists that really strive to provide the highest level of care to their patients through the implementation of evidence-based practice in our field. It's also such a supportive learning environment where everybody is willing to share their expertise and their knowledge to help grow individuals' professional practice, but also advance our profession. It really is such an interesting and unique learning community. I never have encur- um, I never have encountered anything like that in the field until I joined the MedSLP Collective, and I really can't say enough
3: great things about it. I truly cannot say enough good things about being a part of the MedSLP Collective. It's really changed the way that I approach every single type of patient that I may not have been 100% confident in. So obviously we want to work within our realm of competency and make sure our patients are getting the best care, but sometimes the job comes with things that we maybe don't feel highly confident on. So I was trained in voice and I was lucky enough to be trained by an incredible voice pathologist and feel very confident in my voice skills. But my entire career, I have worked in voice and swallowing institutes, and so with the voice people come the swallowing people as well. And that's not something I always was very confident in. And the MetLCP Collective has given me so many resources and so much. Actual information that you can use in the clinic. I've always loved going to conferences and meeting colleagues and networking and being inspired by the researchers, but I always felt lackluster as I came away from it, like I didn't have anything to go home and use. And anytime I'm feeling unsure of anything, I can reach out to a mentor in the group or just to other members. You can go on the website and get instructions on how to do exercises the rationale behind it evidence-based practice it's really just a wealth of knowledge and it has grown my clinical practice immensely and made me feel so much more confident and inspired as a clinician
4: hey everybody natalie douglas here from central michigan university and there are so many reasons that i love the medical slp collective and i'm so grateful to be part of it. Probably the biggest reason is that I love how clinicians are able to approach mentors in ways that specifically solve clinical problems that they're facing right in the moment and get very tailored advice that is supportive and really meeting the needs that they have right then, which I think is such a unique contribution to the profession. I also... Sincerely appreciate how much Teresa really cultivates a culture of respect and collaboration and the resources are just completely top-notch. She has a rigorous peer review process and the resources again are based on true SLP need and I just love how this is an awesome way to merge research and clinical practice in a supportive, collaborative environment. Can't say enough about it.
1: If you are interested in checking out the MedSLP Collective, um, please
0: head over to MedislpCollective.com and get on the waiting list. Enrollment opens May 17th. Uh, we will be open for about a week, and then we will be closing enrollment down. We do have a student rate this time. I know, especially with COVID-19, we have so many grad students that have been displaced from their placements, externships, practicums, and we want to help. So we will have a student rate available. We also do have corporate rates now. So if you are looking to get um, access to the MedSLP Collective for all of the SLPs in your facility or within your corporation, uh, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to work out a rate for you. So again, enrollment opens May 17th. Head to MedSLPCollective.com to get
1: on the waiting list and be the first to be notified.
0: Hello, everybody. Hi. Hello, hello. hello. Okay, we have lots and lots of voices here today, as I'm sure you guys just heard. So we are doing an episode today. You know, obviously, we're in the thick of COVID-19 hell right now. And one group that is being incredibly impacted in our profession is our wonderful grad students who we're hoping to be our colleagues someday here soon. And obviously, they're all hung out to dry, for lack of a better word, because a lot of their placements are getting canceled, or externships are getting canceled because we can't have visitors in the building and all that logistics. So I brought on some wonderful people to talk about that. So Dr. Kate Cribbles from Edinburgh, and she's going to, I'll let you introduce yourself in a minute, Kate, and then Cindy, her colleague, and then we've got some awesome grad students here too. So Kate, if you want to say who you are.
5: Well, yeah, you just said who I was, Kate Kribble. Um, I'm the grad program director at
0: Edinburgh University, and that's all I got. All we need to know? Okay. If you hear a dog barking, it's her adorable dog, Sophie. And Cindy, who are you?
6: Yes. Hi, I'm Cindy Reyes. I serve as the clinic director and internship coordinator for our graduate speech language pathology program in Edinburgh. All right. And we have four
0: wonderful grad students Abby.
7: Hi, I'm Abby. I'm a first year grad student at Edinburgh. So I have the the fresh take on it as far as we're we're just in the thick of it. So I mean we're all in the thick of it, but we're we're new as far as clinic
0: goes. Where are you from originally, Abby?
7: I'm from Erie originally. Okay. Lived in the south for a little bit, but I'm I'm mostly an Erie girl. <laughs> okay.
8: And Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Dingfelder. I'm from Corey PA. I'm a second year grad student at Edinburgh position currently is I'm sitting well with my clinical clock hours and I'm actively seeking a clinical fellowship.
3: All right.
0: Excellent.
8: And Frankie? Hi, I'm Frankie Pendolino. I'm like Emily, I'm a second
9: year grad student. I am in the very thankful position that I'm actually done with my hours, done with my competencies, and will be graduating on May 2nd. So i um, very happy and excited about that. Yeah. And um, I'm from Meadville PA. So a local girl just, just down the street from Edinburgh.
0: Awesome. And Moira?
10: Hello, my name is Moira Fortney. I am a second year graduate student at Edinburgh as well. I am from Edinburgh. And I am on the opposite end of the spectrum, as in I need a lot of hours to finish my program. So that's kind of where I'm at All now. Right. Little right. of the unknown.
0: <laughs> Little of the unknown. All right. Yeah. Well, Kate, what, what do you want to chat about? You want to kind of talk about the current landscape that we're in? Sure. I
5: I think we're past the, you know, crying stage. Yes. <laughs> the immediate, the shock and the grief and the you know that that period of time when it just seems so unreal and impossible that our students and you know the department and all of the students everywhere were in this position and of course we felt sort of silly for for worrying about it when people are dying so you know it's just and and now we're in this phase i think that many in the country are where we're trying to figure out how to move forward and That's what I think is really tough, is that figuring out where we are. We have second-year students. Ours do five clinical rotations, and Cindy can talk a little bit about why we do that. And this happened right at the juncture between the end of their fourth and the beginning of their fifth. So they, they didn't even start their fifth, didn't have an opportunity to even dip their toes in that fifth experience. And the way that our students usually do this is that particularly those who are headed into medical speech pathology, they'll do a, a sniff in their first summer and they'll see some adults in an adult clinic, usually in our clinic, and they'll take advantage of a variety of, you know, CEU events and things like that. And then they, they aim for, you know, a, a level one trauma center or intense high level rehab center or, you know, something. So, I mean, you know, that's building to that. Uh, Those that are aiming for an educational speech pathology experience, and there's some that really can't choose between the two, will sometimes use that final externship to do something like, well, we have one that's working with Kristen West, who's a member of the collective, some of your listeners will probably know her, doing pediatric feeding and swallowing as well as preschool, early language and speech development in a school district. So really focusing on that and then was going to go out to a medical setting after that. So having all of those rotations and kind of individualizing each student's opportunities and letting them go all over the country too, which is you know there are some programs like us that do that, means that you know this was the I don't know, this was the icing on the cake, the cherry on the sundae, the <laughs> Someone save me from too many um, (laughs) bad sayings. But so, you know, and I I think actually just to bring up what Emily said was, you know, she said, yeah, she's in a great position of having sufficient clinical hours ready to go. But although she's been in a fairly high level sniff and in a school placement and has done quite a lot of things, she was heading for a level one trauma center in where Virginia Beach, I think someplace. And, uh, you know, that was going to be, we hoped, the step to get her that medical CF. We know how tough it is to get a medical CF. Students need to be prepared. You need some evidence that they're not just excited about it, but that they've actually done some things. And there we are. Oh. Probably more than you needed to hear right now. But no, that's okay. Are the things that are really, it, it, it feels like a very first world problem. Oh, they didn't get all the best placements, but right, right. Hours are, clinical hours feel like kind of like a, it's almost like a gatekeeping thing because it's, hours are just not as important as clinical experiences and competencies. And, you know, we all know that student who becomes our colleague, who basically at the end of year one, everyone's going, oh, the rest of grad school is just going to be a waste of time. This person's ready. yeah <laughs> well, it doesn't happen <laughs> often, but you know, you just know that's the person who could be starting their CF right now. And you know, there are always ones that you're like, "Oh my God, 400 hours is never going to be enough." You know yeah, none yeah. of our students are like that, but right. But ours feels like such a fake th-
0: yeah, it, it <laughs> does, and, and I think you know, kind of the conversation that I think of is like, and one thing I think you guys do an excellent job of is really getting meaningful placements for your students. And I think of some placements that I had that were very meaningless. And I think to myself, would that last placement really have made, like, could I have done without that last placement? And resounding yes. And then there's others that I think of, could I have done without that placement? No, they had a huge impact on the clinician that I ended up being. So I really, I feel for you guys that you don't get to discern, you know, you don't get to have that, that decision to make you know that that last experience that yes this is definitely the way to go or no this is not my cup of tea at all so
5: and i'm i'm going to turn it over to Cindy and and the students in a moment to kind of talk more specifically about this but we've done a lot of work as i know a lot of programs do to align our clinical externships with our internal philosophy of education so we're looking for cis who bring something additional to the experience but who are striving in some way to improve their own practice and who want to take students as a part of that. So we're always looking for those and, and we tend to kind of continue to use the ones that where the CIs express those kinds of values and maybe not always the others. And, and, you know, I think that this has meant that so many of our students come out of even their first summer externship in a sniff, if not, Particularly, you know, adept at certain skills, they definitely are starting to have a lot of perspective on professional issues, and so then they're and they almost always come back and they're like, okay, now I'm going to look really carefully at my next one, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so we want to be kind of nimble and pivot, you know, quickly to help that student find a different path. Or they meet a professor or a guest lecturer, and they're like, oh, I'm doing pediatric swallowing now. You can't talk me out of it. So it it does feel like. All of those things that we've tried to do that we think are kind of special and extra, and I know there are lots of programs that that do things this way, it feels like,
0: oh, we've just lost that little piece of of specialness, so... Yeah, and I and I I want you to expand on that, and I'll have Cindy expand on it because I think kind of the big, the big elephant in the room that we keep hearing about, you know, online is all these grad students saying, well, we're allowed to get hours on simu case, but it's not the real experience. And I think you nailed you nailed it on the head, there, Kate, when you said the professional issues that come up because I think we can throw a million case studies at you guys all day, and you may just be an amazing textbook clinician but how to navigate those professional issues that are real serious, deep issues that we deal with. And it is a lot of the barriers that we face every day is is something that I don't know how you teach in a textbook or in a simulated case study.
5: (laughs) Simulated cases are, and that's actually one brand, but simulations. and, And I was actually working with our nursing department to develop a fee simulation and a Yale swallow protocol simulation for the ICU. We were doing all these really cool things that, of course, require you to be physically there, so they're not going to happen right now. But SimuCase, I have to say, I'm awfully glad it's there. I'm glad that they are as attentive to the interface and all those kinds of things and that students could get clinical hours for the learning mode where they're developing some understanding. I really see those as an ideal tool to use in our first year Oh we just learned about this. Now let's look at a case. Let's dissect whether we agree with how they handled it. Let's let's talk about what this means. What did they mean when they said you wouldn't ever see a neurologist in this setting but you really needed to consult the ENT. By the time they've hit 4 rotations, it's they want it to be real. They want to jump off the cliff for real. Yeah.
0: Cindy. Yes. Well, you're in Maui now, so (laughs) right, right. So her background shows (laughs) us that she's in Maui. So this is just a, a day at the beach for her. Well,
6: and you know, it's fitting because we've been getting through this whole experience, you know, with humor, with a lot of sailing metaphors about navigating uncharted waters and such. And but you know, it it what made a real difference, I think, for our program from my perspective is the team that you're in the boat with. So, you know, Kate and I had already developed quite a good, strong, healthy working relationship in navigating some, you know, typical challenges of a graduate program. But we also, as Kate mentioned, share the same philosophy when we look at clinical education and view it as um, a partnership with our students. We also are Really focused on competency based education, even though, you know, we do still have the the 400 clock hours and we know that that's, you know, that's a target students have to hit that, but there's so much more to it than that. And so From everything, for example, from our our instrument that we use to evaluate students that um, Kate helped me develop a few years ago, we really focus on students hitting these competency targets and actually 16 of the 38 items on our tool are about professional behaviors. And we're recognizing how important those professional competencies are. But as you mentioned, Teresa, you can't just teach that in the classroom. So one of the reasons we have those five rotations is to give students the opportunity to learn about a practice setting, to watch their CI navigate that difficult conversation with the nurse, the doctor, the the family member, whoever. And so, not only that, but we we take the time during our liaison process when our students are off campus to really get a feel for what is happening in that setting, what are the challenges the um, clinical instructor is facing, and really feeling those and and then having conversations with the student about those difficult things that the CI is navigating. The student watching, you know, a CI go through those things and discuss productivity and discuss the challenges of not having imaging. Well, what do you do in the real world when that happens? You know, those are the things that, yes, through simulation, we really can't, you know, give the students so There was some mourning. There was quite a bit of mourning. I'm still mourning. Uh, Moira, for example, was, you know, getting ready for that VA. She has such a passion for work and I'll let her speak about this, but, you know, I feel the passion that she has for wanting to work with veterans who suffered blast injuries. And she was This close to getting that VA placement, starting that VA placement. And now, and and then even as we were navigating the early phases of this experience, we thought maybe, maybe, maybe they'll let her, you know, maybe she'll be able to go back in, you know, face to face. And then it was, well, maybe they can do telehealth. And now it's nothing right now. And so that was a big blow. And as Kate said, that fifth rotation, you know, I think that we've arranged for four really solid clinic placements for our students and they've learned so much. And many of them, actually this cohort, there's actually six of them that are going to graduate earlier than planned. So, you know, a little silver lining, but it's, yeah, that fifth placement is where the refinement of skills happens. So um, that's been, that's been really hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Moira, I'd love to hear your take on, on things. I hate that this is happening to you.
10: Yeah, that I was so excited to start the VA. That was just something that I could not wait for, even throughout my school placement, which I had a very good experience. But again, my heart is with the veteran population. So I guess my fear is, is not for lack of trying with SIMU case. I feel that's more of an isolated learning experience. Compared to the interactive learning environment that you're in with your internship, and I guess I feel the connections that I would make with clients over a period of time, their families, my coworkers, along with interprofessional collaborations like you guys had talked about, I just feel like that is something that is very. For I'm trying to think of a word. It's a huge contribution, I feel, to my future career as an SLP, and I feel like the networking opportunities, because the medical side is so difficult to get into with the clinical fellowship, I feel like that is also something, how will that affect me to get a CF in the future? And I was so looking forward to the VA and just working with the population there and hoping... To get that experience. That's just something I've just been waiting for the whole six years <laughs> that I've, you know, undergrad and graduate program.
0: Well, I think you can, you can probably write one hell of a cover letter at this point <laughs> about your experience. <laughs>
6: um,
0: so let me ask you, Mo- Moira, where do you stand now? Because you said you don't have all your hours.
10: As of now, it's I have an unknown end date. I am doing some UKs. I am waiting to start participating in telehealth. I have not done that yet. I know it's, a, it's overloaded. There's a lot of people who need it. So whenever my number comes up, I can't wait to join that. But uh, so now I just do SIMU case and I'm trying to look to see what I can do for myself to, I guess, self-advocate for myself for the future of myself as an SLP. I just feel like I'm missing out on a huge chunk it's not just me I know it's we're all in the same boat
0: yeah yeah I think I think that's what's so hard to for us to all realize it's like we're all like why is this happening to me and then we're all like crap it's happening to all of us and 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 I did cry I bet you did I hope you did I mean this is this is awful I I feel horrible for you yeah
10: yes I did cry but I mean I think we're the supervisors and Krivel and Cindy they're doing the best they can with the cards that they're being dealt and we're just dealing with it one day at a time. Yeah.
0: Is is there any hope that they will let you do telehealth with them or are you, are you trying to swerve in a different direction or
10: telehealth with with the, the VA? VA? Yeah. Um, I believe that is already um, not an option okay. as far as I know. So I'm just waiting to see what
0: comes my way. Okay. So well, if anybody's out there and needs a clinician <laughs> that needs a wonderful student that has a passion for veterans, we found her. So go ahead, Cindy. Yep.
6: Exactly. And I was just, if it, okay, thanks. Yeah, I was just going to add that in our local, at our local VA, there is limited opportunity for, for telehealth. But one of the benefits of, of this is that you know moira could do telehealth with someone in san diego who you know and i mentioned that because there's some uh, va's out west that are are looking to hire but again um, through through the good relationships that we already have with our cis they are looking for options for us and saying look i can't help your student but i know someone who can and then our students are being creative and even if they don't need the hours they're saying "Oh." But someone could go with my CI for my school placement, that's what's happening right now, and do some telehealth with them. So everybody is just chipping in and contributing in ways that are really inspiring.
0: Moira, I have a friend that just started with a VA out in California. I'll have to connect you guys, and maybe she knows Maybe they're working towards telehealth. Oh, that would be wonderful. I just remember that. <laughs> yep, Kate?
5: I think one of the other pieces to this is that, you know, we often post all the CFs. There are a lot of competitive CFs. Um, the VA has a number of them. I'm, and our local VA clinician always makes sure that her students are aware of them and her her clinical students. And I, the timeline on those is usually a summer start or early fall start. And which is always a little bit, you know, tight anyway. And now, of course, that's, you know, what do you do? Say, hey, Mario, yeah, just take a year off. You know, I don't think that's really. And, and, you know, so we're looking at some of these things. And I think, you know, like, like Cindy said, we consider ourselves sort of partnering with our students just to try to figure out what to do here. And, you know, think about, okay, where can we aim for clinical fellowship? can we find a clinical fellowship where the prospective supervisor will provide a little bit heavier level of supervision in the beginning so that you can get your feet wet and then be wonderful on the floor? You know, Will they take that risk? I am you know, really hoping that that kind of thing will happen. And I think that I'll probably move us once we've had a chance to, to talk to Frankie and a couple of the other students who haven't really shared the specifics of their stories uh, to talk about the CFCC and what they're currently sort of fr- how they're how they're setting us up right now, what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do, and what we're hoping might come out of a chat that we're going to have with the CFCC. I think on April 30th.
0: Okay. Good, good. All right. Yeah, Frankie, you want to share where where you're at?
9: Yeah. Um. Like I said, I am in the very you know grateful, thankful position that. I received all my hours. Um, I ended my fourth placement with 374.2 hours. (laughs) So I did that one, that was (laughs) 0.8 hours on SimUcase, you know, thank God. And, you know, that, and it wasn't, and, you know, I was, I guess everything for me kind of happened for a reason, because I was supposed to do my school placement first, and then my Uh, medical placement second. And I did my medical placement at this amazing children's hospital in New Jersey had the most amazing supervisors and incredible experience worked long days. I loved it. And I was supposed to do that second and it got flipped and I did it first. And because of that, I was in the position to receive all the rest of my hours and the competencies, um, because it was a very diverse population and it was wonderful. So very thankful for that and just thankful for all the support. Our cohort is very close. Our professors treat us like colleagues. Our program has done nothing but help us with this. So, I I couldn't feel more lucky oh, to be a part of it.
0: Yeah. Where where do you go from here,
5: Frankie?
9: Um, well, I guess once I graduate there are I'm in some you know, some conversations with some CF positions, um, those are kind of contingent on me going and visiting those places, though. So um, I've, you know, the everybody I've talked to, you know, just to kind of divert for a second, you know, our, our profession as a whole is so supportive and understanding that, you know, they're, they're doing everything they can for us as well. At least that's what I've seen. So, you know, I've been talking to these positions, and they're, they've been, like, hey, you know, like, We want to get you out here to make sure that you like us as much as we like you. As of right now, seeing as hopefully the world opens up again within the near future, I'll be going out and visiting those places. But if not, I feel like I'm pretty,
8: have a pretty good idea of, you know, where I want to go. So good. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, of course. Emily, what's going on with you? Hey, like Frankie, um, my graduation date got moved up to May 2nd, which Is Is that next weekend? Yeah, it's next weekend. Yay! It's it's kind of a blessing. And then again, it's a little disheartening. Um, Like Moira, I'm missing out on my final um, high-level medical placement. What a student here. She's (laughs) disappointed to be graduating. I was supposed to be in a level one trauma center in Virginia, like Kate said. And in all honesty, if you would have asked me at the end of the fall semester, I 100% would be heading medical CF. At this time, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, My comfort level is just not quite there. And what are we heading into after this pandemic too? What is the quality of supervision going to be like as I'm missing out on my high level medical placement? Am I going to have that extra support? Not saying that I didn't have um, a good quality sniff setting. I had an amazing supervisor. He was just so knowledgeable and helpful in all regards, and I learned so much from him. However, just moving forward with a medical CF right now, it's where my heart would be originally, I think, but I'm in the position where I don't know if that's what I want for myself right now. So I have been applying to jobs and actively interviewing um, in New York State both in the medical and educational setting and have potential opportunities for CFs that are lining up. Um, I'm just kind of in that limbo situation right now of what do I want for myself as a CF and where do I want to take my career? So currently I'm feeling more like the educational side of SLP is the safe, secure route to go currently and then possibly getting my toes wet doing prn work once i finish my cf in the schools i'm just sitting in a spot where not sure what i want right now and trying to take every every day as a new opportunity and growth for growth. And I think missing out on my medical placement too has been an opportunity for me to kind of hone in on some information. Being stuck at home, I've, um, I took advantage of the med SLP student discount. So I've been utilizing some of those resources um, to catch up to speed on some things. But I'm just kind of in a position where I thought I was heading in one direction, but maybe not so much now. I
0: want to say this as tactfully as as possible because I know you're such a strong student, and I hope I I hope so badly you can find a gr- a really good fit in the medical side. But I also think that your maturity and your wisdom just shows, and that you're you're making all the right decisions, and that you're cautious of making sure you have someplace that has good mentorship and good supervision. And I I commend you for thinking those things because that's such a thing that so many students don't consider they just see the shiny object placement and they run for it and then it's got horrific mentorship horrific supervision and ends up being a really you know discouraging experience and and we always hate to hear those things so I'm I I love hearing that you're answer you're asking the right questions and you're looking for the right things and I I so hope that you can find a medical placement because I know we need you but the schools can have you if they need you too but (laughs) I hope you come back to us (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So Emily,
5: could you tell, talk a little bit about some of the barriers though? And I'm, you know, I have mixed feelings. I'm thinking, well, if these barriers last, maybe you'll, you'll end up in medical anyway, but you know, you're looking in New York state and the, there are some requirements to get qualified in the schools there that require you to take some in-person courses and tests and things like
8: that? Yeah, so um, New York State licensure, there's some requirements. You have to take the educating all students test, and with the stay-at-home order still being implemented, I haven't been able to take that test as of now, so going into my interviews, it's just the unknowns of when am I going to have my certifications, Um, so I really can't give these placements a definitive answer, so even though I'm graduating early, there's so many unknowns. And I think that's what's just so upsetting about the situation too is, can I put my trust in these places I'm interviewing with to um, be accepting and understanding? And so far, I've been very lucky and um, all of the schools and medical placements that I've interviewed with have been amazing and completely understanding, willing to work with me throughout. But I think it has made some locations hesitant to hire because they need the manpower but the unknowns of when are we gonna have it it's just not there
0: well hopefully this stuff will open up soon and you'll be able to get some more answers i know it's just it's maddening in new york state right now because just everything government wise is shut down which which stinks because you would hope that they could you could probably take this test very easily online if i but anyways that's for another discussion but Well, I hope things work out for you, Emily. I know they will, but good luck to you. Thank you. Yeah. What's going on with you, Abby? Okay, so I am definitely in
7: a a much different place than the other ladies are, just because I'm, like I said, I'm a first year graduate student. So we are, so we were in our first clinical rotation. So we were doing, uh, we had clients at the campus and we had spring break and then we never came back. Um, so we kind of everything was like a you know abruptly halted as as everybody's life was. So we had some um, simulated experiences prior to the, you know, everybody being home. And it was, it was one of those things where it was an opportunity to do something that we might not be able to do in class or in the clinic, like maybe give a certain assessment or do a certain treatment with a client that we might not experience in the, in the clinic setting. So it was, it was, it was nice as a supplemental tool. And now we are relying on that as our main source of, clinical hours and in looking forward that that it is the main source but we also understand that and this is something we actually just talked about today with Cindy that it is it's it's still only a part of it a part of your experience it's not the end all be all we also talked about how in in graduate school you're never going to be able to get all the experiences you need that that you that nothing is you know nothing nothing beats a firsthand experience and you're not going to be able to get all those experiences in two years of graduate school anyway. So just kind of work, you know, I think for first years, we have to kind of keep that in mind that it's, it's not the end of the road. It's just a different, different little path that we're taking. Um, I don't know. I wrote some notes here about what I wanted to say about, let me see. Oh, I think another big one is that I think for first year graduate students, a lot of people go from, like high school to undergrad to graduate school. And you have you don't have these experiences in the real, like the, you know, the real world everybody talks about. And I think a situation like this is a perfect, albeit extreme example of there's never certainty with anything. So just being in a place where you, you can have these experiences, be positive and just getting the best that you can. The silver linings have, have been a big one. And I don't know, I think it's been a good experience in the fact that we've been able to Moira had mentioned about networking. I don't think we ever would have been able to have these experiences like this with everybody on zoom all the time. I've met so many different people from all over. And it's, it's really been an incredible experience in that fact. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's like the great thing. I think I mean, I've been doing so many online things for so long. And there's like the camps that think that it's so horrible. And I love that now people are being forced to learn this way and realize that this can be a productive way to learn. Is it the be all and all? Of course not. But there's definitely some things that can be taught this way that can be very beneficial. So is, is there is anything going to happen with your graduation day, Abby? Like, are they pushing you guys out? Or how's that?
7: Not that we've heard of. Um, I know that's definitely a big fear. It's honestly, it's not something that I've necessarily put a lot of thought into our our communication science disorders group has been the faculty have been amazing everything i feel like we're we're fed information as soon as they get it i don't feel like anything is being withheld you know that we maybe we can't handle the information i feel like everybody's just super upfront and honest about all the information even if it's not information we necessarily want to hear but as far as graduation goes I haven't heard anything about that I think I would if I mean I think the whole group would if if anything were to change but that's been a huge you know the openness has been a huge huge thing
0: I think it's 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 interesting to have to watch your instructors and your professors navigate this thing too you know it's knowing that nobody has a guidebook for this. Nobody has a manual and everybody's just trying to do the best that they can with all of this. So it's interesting times for sure. But thank you for sharing, Abby. I love your positive outlook on everything.
7: I just read a thing today about from Brene Brown, you know, she's always so optimistic and some days are hard and sometimes you hit a wall, but it's not the end and you're still going to make it through. And I'm very much in that place today that I'm hitting a wall and it's hard and but it's okay. We'll have a, we'll have a nice respite and it'll be okay. It will. it will. We're still alive and we're very fortunate. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, good Cindy. So, so they are, they can still graduate from what you guys know. There's no deep, dark secrets here. No deep,
6: dark secrets. No. Good. So okay. we're, yeah. We're, <laughs> um, and you know, we had, speaking of transparency, which Abby mentioned, that's just how that that's been our MO again. Moira and Frankie and Emily can speak to, you know, we've been through some things together, haven't we, guys? Right. But the way that our leadership team has dealt with our challenges is transparency, collaboration, communication. So, yes, um, although I am a parent and I do have the instinct to want to protect and, you know, like Abby was saying, like, are they ready to hear this? I have that instinct, but they are adults and they are our partners in this. And by the way, they have a lot to contribute. So they think of things that we haven't thought of, you know? So I think all of that has been really important, that kind of attitude and that culture that we have in getting through this. And so we know that, things are going to look very different. So last night, um, you know, Craig Coleman, our department chair has been um, hosting these collaborative discussions and we heard from professionals across the country and just how they're navigating the changes in what the profession looks like now. Um, So they were giving us a good idea and students were on the call as to what things might look like in the fall and then next spring. So we're paying attention to that. We're educating ourselves. We're keeping our eyes and ears open, our finger on the pulse, all the other metaphors uh, to try to, at the very least, have you know be prepared as prepared as we can be and and i keep saying having backup plans for our backup plans i think slps are good at that anyway so that's what we bring to the table we don't have all the answers but we are trying awesome beautiful
0: and kate i keep wanting to say it's asha but it's not asha that's the cfcc that tells you guys what to do basically
5: so um yeah the well the caa is our accrediting agency and the cfcc is the I can never follow all the alphabet soup, yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Basically, the CFCC is the entity that determines the requirements for completion of the the graduate requirements, the clinical graduate requirements, and then um, the CF. So, and it's just, I think it's just been tough. You know, there's a CFCC board. You know, I don't know any of the individuals on it. They seem to be, you know, very approachable, very available, but... I'm sure they're trying really hard to figure out, you know, what's the best approach to take. And probably like so many of us, you know, it's hard to invest a bunch of time in creating a solution when after about the third or fourth week of this, we've realized that the rules keep changing. So, you know, how much work do you put into a creative solution when you're going to discover that, you know, all of the, the variables have just taken a left turn. So I can appreciate that it took them a little bit of time to decide not to extend the simulation hours beyond 75 and their rationale was that they felt that they had an obligation to stakeholders and that means clients and you know everybody else to ensure the quality of clinical education. And I can also appreciate that they did open up to allow teletherapy, telepractice as a Clinical experience. They did not put a cap on those hours. They did ask for one hundred percent supervision. I'm not sure that I have seen a uh, clear rationale for that. That's actually a question that I have for the the CFCC when we meet next
0: week. When there's a there's a chat, oh, I, explain that to me. So that means so if so, say Moira's doing teletherapy and she needs one hundred percent supervision. Would that be with the other SLP in the facility or so the SLP? Yeah
5: the supervising slp needs to be the on the yeah on on the platform with her 100%. and so you know we know that that's true for example in part b right so you know we know we i think in medical we're kind of like yeah we're we're used to dealing with this but then you know i think especially with the advent of training for supervisors and developing some competency in fact supervision competency is coming in graduate education cuz like our scope isn't big right. enough we need to add more so I think that I trust supervisors to determine when their supervisee is ready to have them step back. And in fact, in one of our calls uh, last night, we were talking about how presence of a supervisor necessarily changes the behavior of the graduate student clinician. It can be the most wonderful experience in the world. You can have a great relationship, but if you're both there... Client's behavior changes, and the student's behavior changes, and there's just something different that happens. There's something actually really neat that somebody brought up, and I can't recall who, was that you can sort of absent yourself. Your student's going to know you're there, but you can you know, basically take your picture off of the screen so that the child or the adult client isn't seeing you, and they may or may not know you're there, but that can change, but it changed the experience, I think. But I I do think that, you know, we're being given some guidelines and recommendations. What my concern is, and I think this is not mine alone, is that in our profession and in our professional relationships in the world, we're looking for data-driven decisions, right? So, you know, we're looking for CMS, for example, to approve or not approve different kinds of interventions in medical speech pathology related on data, you know, based on data. We want to know that there's a reason for this. And the uh, CFCC is giving us reasons and they have to do with things like, well, we don't wanna lower the number of hours because state licensure boards and state educational certifications are expecting these number of hours to be commensurate with the degree, blah, blah, blah. Um, That's okay. That's not data-driven though. That's sort of circumstance-driven. And I guess I would like to know where, what data do we have? And it, it, it's, you know, it's possible we just don't have any, or or maybe we do, and I'm simply not privy to it and I'm not aware of it, that, you know, 375 contact hours is is the magic number and that it correlates well with competency. I'm not sure that it does. I'm not sure in my experience that it does. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen folks that I would say, well, we're going to have to go to like 700, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I've seen folks that, you know, at at 200, you're like, wow, I'm ready to just be next to you as
0: my colleague. And I I think that's that's kind of a common theme, you know, in our field with some things that are competency. You know, it's like there is no definitive guideline for it. It's basically just a recommendation. And when you're deemed competent, you're deemed competent. It's very arbitrary. And so I almost wonder, you know, that was one thing I wanted to ask you is if they might, Just consider that, you know, you guys give the green light for, you know, this person may be 0.8 hours short of their (laughs) of their hours, but can we deem them competent in this area and I just, I think this whole thing reveals all the insane red tape that there is.
5: Well, and I think that 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 gets back to, you know, what is competency and how are you defining it? And one one of the great challenges as our scope gets bigger is that somehow we're supposed to have everybody at the end of this usually slightly less than two year graduate experience have something that's sort of mysteriously called entry level for the CF competency in all the areas. And in my view, and I, I, you know, I network with a lot of other educators, so we, we talk about this. I need to feel, you know, ethically that I can sign off on this, right? So what I'm looking for is in high frequency, high occurring situations, we want to aim pretty high. You know, you should be able, if you have a child with an articulation problem, you should be able to give and, and score the, you know, the goldman Fristo and you should be able to dis- distinguish whether this is a phonological problem, You know, <laughs> you know. These are high frequency things in medical speech pathology high frequency things also need to at least have an awareness you you know you shouldn't be leaving graduate school not aware that imaging is required that you can't make a decision based upon you know the laying on of hands um, so but for lower frequency things maybe we're looking for are you aware of the disorder are you aware of where to find and access materials are you aware of how to decide whether you have the competency to move forward or whether you need to make a referral and so on and so forth. If those things were laid out I think a little bit more explicitly and we had clearer guidelines perhaps through the accrediting body the CAA and the CFCC, for implementation, I think we would have a stronger basis for eliminating hours and I'm just going to guess and I am so new to this part of you know the profession I've only been a grad program director for like a minute I'm just going to guess that people aren't there yet. They're not ready to agree. They're not ready to under, to make that determination. Cindy, I, I'd like to hear Cindy's view on this because she's been doing clinical
6: education a lot longer than I have. Yes, and I've, uh, I, yeah, no, that's Way okay. to put you on the spot, no, right? Thinking, oh, believe <laughs> me, I've been, yeah. I, and actually, I've been just perusing the CFCC's rationale for why they're insisting on the 100% Supervision and some of these other things, and thinking about it. So, so, CAPSID, which is the Council on Academic Programs and CSD, has been a real leader in this uh, regard. And, and I uh, attend the CAPSID conventions yearly and get so much out of them. Uh, and one of the recurring topics and themes is when are we going to get on board pt's doing it ot's already done it you know nurses are doing it and and really convert to competency based education and uh, standards for certification. So, like Kate said, we're we're not there yet. And if you put ten SLPs in the room and uh, room and ask them what does competency mean to you, you're going to get ten different answers. And they're going to say, well, it's complicated, and you know, et cetera. So I get it. It is complex, but. You know, through our, our study of competency and, and again learning from these other professions that have that have done it, they've used things like OSCEs, where you have an uh, sort of like a simulated experience for the student to engage in. It's a clinical education experience that's kind of structured and but yet it's unscripted. And so you watch the student go through this interaction with a client, and then you can rate the student. And by the way, we could bring in the Teresa Richards of the world to say, okay, how do you think Emily navigated that, you know, simulated experience? So there's plenty of ways to do it. They're all gray and and you know we have to have consensus on what is competency but there are models out there so i just think we need to move forward i mean this has all made us jump right into simulations and telepractice i think now it's time to jump into competency based education i don't have the answers but i know there are others that do and i think it's it's time to to just you know allow ourselves to change and grow And I think the students would appreciate that, too, because I know it's like mixed messages. You know, we're telling the students, you need so many hours. And then the ones that have the 400 hours, like, oh, I'm good. And we're like, oh, no, but wait, there's competency. So even the students, even, you know, I'm saying competency, but I'm also saying hours. So it's confusing for them, too. And so what we've done with our instrument, I will say, is ASH has given us the standards. So we have those lovely, you know, standard four and standard five, and we have all those items under those we're looking at competency as are you meeting some targets, but the way we're, we're measuring that is how independent the student is in doing that skill and showing what they know. And so it's those things we're good at measuring. We know how to do that. It's just, we have to come to consensus on what types of things students should be doing at what level. And when we're ready to let them move on to the CF, and continue to grow. That's what I think. Cindy for president.
0: (laughs) I love it, Cindy. I got nothing. That was was beautiful. (laughs) Thank you so much.
5: And I know that this is a recurring topic in both educational and medical settings is let's make sure that that CF is truly a CF. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's make sure that it's not You know, somebody who's kind of phoning it in as supervision and that there are goals and that there are high standards and even trying to come up with a list of questions for students to ask a potential CF supervisor. You know, I'm I'm trying to find those sneaky ways to try to figure out whether it's somebody who keeps up with new things like, uh, you know, because do you really want to just ask them? So one of the questions I, I have for like, you know, a SNF supervisor is, has your practice changed since you began practicing? <laughs> nope. Been doing the same thing for 30 years. <laughs> what I really want them to say is, do you use imaging? Are you, yeah. are you, you know, yeah. are you what's normal and what's not, you know, since that just changed last week? I mean, you know, yeah. so yeah. it's really complicated. And I think the best that we, and, you know, all the other programs can do is to turn out students who can cope with all of that
0: and we'll get the, best for themselves but boy it is tough it is tough I think what I keep going back to too is that you know even you're graduating next week Emily I mean technically you guys are in a week you're a colleague of mine Emily you're no longer a student you know and it, and it's you your guys maturity and wisdom shows obviously in that but I just think of some students that aren't at that level I'll say that tactfully yeah go ahead Emily
8: going off of that Teresa I have friends In other states who are first year grad students like Abby. And um, my one friend in particular um, is a PA resident, but chose an out-of-state school because it was her dream school. She wanted to go there because of all of the experiences she had, would have there. And currently she's missing her spring semester within the school clinic. The summer, her placement there uh, with specific camps, is going to be on teletherapy. And she had an acute care hospital placement for this fall and has already been told that's canceled due to the pandemic and her placement only has four four rotations so her entire grad school career is basically going to be consistent of online simulations and teletherapy and her biggest concern is am I going to be a competent clinician when I am ready to graduate and so yeah as a second year I'm concerned because I'm missing one of my placement but placements but my heart goes out to these first year students who not only are missing one but possibly two or three placements and it's it's just what is the next couple of years of our profession gonna end up looking like because of the ripple effect of the pandemic here and between cfs and graduate school for multiple students
0: yeah yeah Ugh. well this sticks <laughs> I,
8: um, I, I totally agree with emily
9: like it's, you know, like you, you tend to think of yourself during these really difficult. And I think Cindy and Kate said it best these morning times, but, you know, there are students that are younger than us and ones that haven't even gotten into grad school yet that are also going to feel the effects of this. But as I've been trying to be more positive about it, I think that a lot of our profession, we strive for flexibility. And that's been one of the key things, you know, as a student and as a type A personality that most of us are. We love things a specific way. And I think that having to be so flexible in this time, and everybody kind of has to shake up the norm, the normalcy of what they're doing. I think that, you know, maybe we can argue that hopefully in a couple of years, we're going to look at the COVID grad students and be like, okay, these are the people that their whole school experience got flipped upside down. And these are the supervisors that helped and the professors and everybody in the profession. So hopefully that'll be something to add to the resume and not take away yeah. from it. Yeah.
0: So yeah. Hopefully. A, yeah. Yes. I, I completely agree. I think, like I said, I think Moira's got a really compelling cover letter to write about her passion for veterans. And, and then she unfortunately got screwed in this situation, but yeah. Oh. Well, I think this was a more positive conversation than I thought it was going to be, you guys. I thought you were all going to come on here and be like, they said I can't graduate ever. So I'm glad that there's hope and I'm glad that they didn't say that for you. But I, I do feel I, I do feel for you guys that you don't get that last clinical placement. But yeah, like we keep saying, you know, everybody's in this, in this boat. And I know as someone that's been in the field for a while, you know, we're always excited to get good, eager to learn students and, and you guys will learn and adapt and and catch on. So, Cindy, Kate, anything to add?
5: I, I think probably the only thing I would add to that is that we that we haven't addressed, and I don't really necessarily want to go into it a lot, but is the fact that we've also pivoted to online delivery of our didactic courses. So, um, right now I'm teaching a course in aphasia, and neurogenic disorders, and a um, and dysphagia, and we completely missed our freezing opportunity. We did some scoping, but not yes. you know, and you know, it's fine. It was, uh, you know, half of the semester. But now we and probably a lot of the universities are hearing that we will know whether we're going to be online in the fall sometime in July. And it's one thing to sort of, you know, throw a class together and continue to teach it online. It's another thing to teach online, which I've done in the past for another university. And, you know, that means creating really tight lectures because online just takes students longer and it takes faculty longer. And it you lose so much of that incidental learning that the best way in my experience to use our synchronous time is in more, let's have a conversation. Let's talk now and have them do the lecture asynchronously, which means I better start now. (laughs) I'm going to be doing that in, you know, in August. And I appreciate that the universities. Can't be expected to make those decisions now. They don't want to make a a decision to be online when it's not going to be necessary. But they can't possibly know that today. So I think that this is reverberating else through the um, academic world. And seniors in high school are probably thinking, "Well, I'm not really sure if I'm going to go to school." And students who have accepted graduate admission spots are 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 probably thinking, uh, "I'm going to trust these people to take care of me," but you know maybe. Maybe I'll wait. And those are, I think that's just going to be how it is for a while. And, you know, we're looking at, we don't know anything, you know, we're going to have another wave in the fall. Who knows? But I think, you know, we can be flexible, but there's a certain point at which you, you sort of have to know or have a reasonable expectation of what you're paying for when you, you know, you commit to those tuition dollars. And I think your faculty need to have a reasonable framework for success. Otherwise it's okay. I think to have a course or two where it's like, Oh boy, that was a hot mess, but you know, I, you can't do
6: that for an entire program. It's not going to work out. So Cindy, final thoughts. What Kate just mentioned made me think of the first batch of pancakes always burns. So that's how we've been, <laughs> that's what we've been, ah. that's how we've been getting by, but <laughs> oh you know, God. we got to move to the second batch now.
0: <laughs> we do. Yeah, that's all I got. The sacrificial first (laughs) batch. All right. I love it. I love it, Cindy. All right. Well, thank you so much, all of you guys, for sharing your experiences. And best of luck to you guys. Lord knows that you're going to come out of this on top because none of us have ever had to go through anything like this. So best of luck to you guys. Thank you, Kate and Cindy. Thank you for having us.
6: All right. Thank Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank
1: Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye, guys. You're welcome so if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge then please leave a review on itunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming also don't forget to subscribe share with your closest colleagues and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes also credit to stephanie jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank Thank you so much to all of you for
6: listening.